Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Well, today, um, as George mentioned, we're still in our series on Hebrews, and we are in chapter 11. So we've, we've been here a while there's a lot of uh, big themes in the book of Hebrews, and so if anything I say is just kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, you're coming on the tail end of, of a lot of buildup. And so we have a podcast, Anacortes Christian Church podcast channel. You can look up and listen to the series. It's, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, if you know how to do that, feel free to join us there, or you can just go on our website and look at past sermons and listen, and we'd love to have you, encourage you to actually to go and catch up on those so that you're um, able to kind of track with what's going on here. So chapter 11, they call it the Hall of Faith. It's kind of a capstone. It's like a crescendo moment in the letter where the author is going to just start plowing through a list of what some people would call heroes of the faith, kind of an Old Testament group of people listed in chronological order for the most part. And uh, heroes is often a word that's used. I don't know if that's the best word, because when you look at these people and you think about what we think of when we normally think of who is a hero, um, they might not fit the bill. And so that, you know, would raise some questions, because oftentimes the people that we see in these lists are not stellar moral examples. Many of them had doubts, struggles. They struggled with sin. They whined and complained. They were reluctant to follow God. They made huge catastrophic mistakes. So what does the author have in mind here? Furthermore, many of them have suffered greatly as a result of their faith decisions. And so one could say to the author, hey man, um, this is not a very good sales pitch. You know, you're trying to get us to follow suit, to, to have faith like they did, and boy, that doesn't sound very grand uh, in some ways. But I think it's important, because for one thing, where we left off last week, chapter 10, is this picture that has been painted over and over again of where we're at right now. And, and he likens where we're at to where the Israelites were at when they were in the wilderness, in the In between space, God had saved them, rescued them out of Egypt and slavery. And on the other side, you've got the promised land that they're hoping for. But there's this wilderness time where they're tested. They're, in many cases, not trusting God, not moving forward. And uh, they actually start to accuse God of bringing them out of the land of promise, of milk and honey. That was Egypt, which in fact was a land of genocide and slavery. And they're accusing God of bringing them into the wilderness to make them into slaves, whereas God is trying to free them. And so he's talking to a group of people who are going through some tough stuff. There's pressure, there's persecution, there's a temptation to go back to what was familiar and to withdraw and retreat. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't want to give up on these promises like the people in the wilderness did. And so the challenge is to draw near, not to shrink back. And so it ended with, my righteous one shall live by faith. That was an Old Testament quotation. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he says, the righteous live by faith. Okay, the righteous being the ones who are counted right in God's eyes, who are justified in God's sight, live not by moral performance, not by their works, but by faith. But what is faith? And so that's where he's going now. Faith is dot, 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 and we'll get into that. But that's important. What is faith and what isn't faith? Faith in what? And the reason why it's important is because it's very ambiguously defined today. You ask a person, what do you think faith is? You're going to get a lot of answers, um, you know, throughout the ranks of our culture today. Faith means for one thing, maybe that if I live a good life because um, I'm, I'm doing good, that I will please God and he'll reward me with a life of ease and wealth and material comforts. It's fueled by the belief that a good God can only produce good material things in the lives of good people. And that's one view of faith that you have um, among a lot of people that believe they're Christians today. Um, That if you do the right things, you please God, things are just going to go well for you. Another view of faith for others, faith means adherence simply to a strict set of ideas, rules, principles, doctrines, whatever it is, a creed of some kind. And that's as far as it goes. God asks, do you believe this? You say, yes, check off the box. All right, you're good. And then you just kind of go on with no change in your life whatsoever. For others, faith is this blind leap into the unknown. In other words, faith is to believe in things without evidence. They'll say that faith is the opposite of science. Or that if you're going to have faith, that means you have to let go of your cognitive use of reason. As George Guthrie put it, it's a warm-hearted step into the black cavernous hole of one's hopes and dreams. (laughs) You've just got to have faith, they'll say, and that often means you just have to act contrary to all that you know to be true and trust that things are going to work out for you the way that you want them to. In general... People smile on the idea of having faith today, but they don't want to talk about what you're putting your faith in, okay? They'll say it's about the journey, not the destination, right? And there's some legitimacy to that. People kind of forget about the journey and how they're living their lives sometimes, but at some point, you, you have to start talking about the destination eventually, because a journey always ends up somewhere, Right? Or they'll say it doesn't matter what your faith is in as long as it's sincere. Yeah, which I think is another way of saying it's good and healthy to sincerely have faith in nothing. Because if it doesn't matter, then what's the point? So what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, there's a lot to this little passage. It's going to set up a pattern that he's going to follow as he starts listing people of faith. And we're not going to read through all of that 
all the, the heroes of the faith or the hall of faith. Um, but I'm going to spend some time talking about this a little bit because it can sound a little bit shallow at first glance. It kind of sounds like he's saying believing in something is in and of itself evidence for that something, which wouldn't hold a lot of water, right? Like if you just have a faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen or the evidence of things unseen as if the faith itself is the evidence that something exists. But that's not exactly what he's saying. And to, to get into why, we have to dive into some of the meanings of some of the words here. The word assurance there, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word is a Greek word. It's only used five times. Three of them are here in this book. And it's a word, hypostasis. And it refers to the reality behind or underneath what is visible, what is seen. It's the objective reality behind the visible reality. For example, it's December right now, and it's, uh, it's cold outside. It's going to get colder probably, which means that if you don't have heat, uh, this is a pretty hostile place to live in. And one of the things that I find is easy to take for granted is a warm house, um, but you quickly realize how much you notice or appreciate warmth, something that is felt, when suddenly, as it did for us this week, our furnace conked out and it disappeared. And so, uh, you know, you suddenly are like, it's, it feels different. It's getting cold in here. What's going on? And the thermostat is set to one thing and the temperature is dropping. You know, you've got a problem. So the furnace, this thing that's probably hidden in some corner somewhere, is the hypostasis, the source, the underlying objective reality behind the heat, the warmth that you feel, okay? And of course, there's probably an objective reality underneath the furnace, too. There's natural gas or electricity, and then there's something behind that, too. And eventually, you probably get to God, but that's not really where I was planning to go with that. So, hypostasis. Um, furthermore, he's using that phrase to connect it with another passage he, he used earlier to talk about linking this with Jesus. Okay? Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his hypostasis. Okay? His, his nature. Christ is the hypostasis, okay? He is the imprint of the underlying reality of God. And notice where it goes next. The passage says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then our passage that we just read said, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Okay, so the point is faith admits there is an unseen objective reality behind what is seen and visible. But it doesn't stop there. And as we read, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Whatever your view on origins is, uh, even if you are the most materialistic person, you're probably going to agree with what most scientists say today, that the universe had a beginning. Okay? There was a point at which the scientific properties of the universe were broken down. They call it a singularity or a big bang or whatever you want to call it. 
there is a point at which there was not matter and then there was. Okay, they, they, we agree on this. There was some kind of combustion and even though there's a law of matter that says that you can actually not totally destroy or create matter that exists, somehow it exploded into existence and is still expanding and so on and so on. The question that's being set up for us here is, if all of those properties were broken down at one point and everything that exists came into existence, if you can come to a place where you can say it's possible that an intelligent, conscious mind caused that to happen, does it make more sense to build your life purely on what you can see and feel and touch, what's visible, or... Do you give preeminence, great, greater authority to the unseen reality behind what you can see, which makes more sense? Okay, and that's the paradigm that he's going to kind of launch off of here. Which world are we building our lives upon? It's giving us a starting point. There is a hypostasis a source. He also talked about the word conviction. This is only the only time in the whole Bible this word is used, elenkos. And it refers to an argument of refutation through cross-examination, a demonstration of proof. So our passage said, faith is the assurance, the hypostasis of things unseen, and the conviction of, excuse me, of things hoped for, and the conviction of things unseen. And that word uh, for conviction means that this isn't blind faith, okay? There is something that happens when you put your trust in the unseen reality. There's a result, okay? When you put your trust in only what is visible, you're going to see visible results. When you put your trust in something that is invisible, an objective conscious reality behind it, you're also going to see different results. And the word conviction here is referring to, you're going to see validation of that choice, okay? And, and the way he puts it is, the people of old received their commendation, Okay, and he's going to go through a big list of how God acted and worked in the lives of people who trusted in God and stepped out in faith and the hypostasis and what God did in their lives to validate or vindicate or bear witness to that. The word commendation actually is the same word from which we get the word martyr because it means witness, to bear witness. And it's saying because they bore witness to God, God bore witness to them in some way that validated that journey, okay? So it's giving us a starting point. Do you build your life on the basis of what is observable and tangible only, or do you attempt to seek out and build your life upon the unseen foundation behind what is seen? So right away, we have some observations about what faith is and what it isn't. For one, it's not devoid of reason. It asks some big questions about the universe and which reality should I be acknowledging or patterning my life after. Two, faith isn't merely a blind statement of belief. It is to actively live out a life based upon where you root your hope. And as we'll see in a minute, in other words, which city 
do you hope in? That's going to shape the pattern of your life, and that shape is what faith refers to. And faith isn't something we merely accept without evidence. A life lived rooted in what is seen is going to get certain results. A life lived rooted in what is unseen is also going to get results. And the argument here is that the people of old were vindicated, commended, confirmed, borne witness to by the life they were live walking in, living walking in faith to God as the right choice. Even though it'll say they did not receive the outcome of their faith, the final fulfillment of that promise, that's still coming. And yet they still trusted. So the author sets us up for a tale of two cities. The visible universe, the world that is seen, the land from which Abraham was called out to go to a place that God would show him. It's Egypt and all of its pleasures versus the city that has foundations, as Abraham hoped in, whose designer and builder is God. The homeland we are seeking, the better heavenly country, a city prepared by God, the hope of resurrection to a better life. All of these I'm quoting from our passage, from our chapter. You've got two cities, the world and its city on the one hand, and the city of God on the other. Excuse me for a second. My mouth is getting a little dry here. And while I don't want to talk about all of the examples of faith or where he'd be here all day, I'm going to talk about the first one he gives, Abel, kind of as an example of this because it's not very clear. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Genesis 3.15 is a story in the middle of God pronouncing curses after the fall, and he curses the serpent, and he says, the offspring, there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the woman is going to strike his head, but even as he does, the offspring of the serpent is going to strike his heel. Okay, people call that the Proto-Evangelion, the first hope of Christ that's kind of put in there. This is Genesis 3.15. So naturally, the people that are ejected from Eden, where do they go? Well, the next story is their two sons. This is the seed of the woman. And so the question is, are Cain and Abel going to be the ones to strike the serpent on the head? Are they going to reverse the curse? Are they going to get us back inside the garden? Okay, And so you have these two sons, and they're making sacrifices to God. One of the things that I never picked up on until I listened to a podcast a few months ago by the Bible Project is the geography of this story. Okay, Because there's a comment when Cain is jealous of Abel's sacrifice, God, he's not angry with Cain over his sacrifice, but he just liked Abel's better. And, and he says, hey... Uh, if you do well, it'll go well for you. But if you do not, beware. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must rule over it like a beast. You know, we're supposed to have dominion over the beasts. You're not supposed to let the beast, the serpent, have dominion over you, 
causing you to become a beast. You're supposed to ascend over that as the image of God. And so Cain doesn't listen. Of course, he rises up and kills his brother. But the geography, where's the door? Okay, I always thought, this is like the door of your heart or what, you know, something like that. But as you keep reading, it talks about what happens next. He's ejected out of the region of Eden and goes east to the land of Nod. Now, the reason I'm tying all this in is because it, it, there's like symbolism here that connects with the layout of the tabernacle and, and where everything was laid out and the door with the seraphim and the flaming swords and all this stuff. Where, what they're doing is they're at the door of the garden. They want to come back in. And so they're appealing to God through their sacrifices. They're trying to make it right. And Abel's hope is a greater hope in God's city because he doesn't care if he gives God the best parts, the fattened parts, the first fruits, not knowing if he's going to have a good harvest to come. Whereas Cain gives God a sacrifice after the passage of time, it says. And so God is pleased with Abel's offering because he seeks to draw near to God. But what happens? Jealousy, Abel or Cain rises up, kills his brother, and he's exiled further from the garden. And out in the wilderness, what does he do? He builds a counterfeit city. Okay, he, build, he and his offspring build a city, and there's a lot of ingenuity and human goodness happening there, but there's also a lot of violence and greed. And so now you have these two cities. And the more we trust God and long for his city and live for what is unseen, the more we start to transform our lives and the world around us to become like that city and to anticipate it now. But the more we trust in only what's seen, immediate gratification or acting on our impulses, the further we get from the city we really want to go to, the further out we are driven. And so that's the picture that's set up. And it says that even though Abel died, his, he still cries out, he still speaks in faith um, in the extra biblical book. The book of Enoch, there's this whole episode where he sees Abel underground crying out, is still crying out from the ground. And Genesis says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What's he crying out? He's crying out for vengeance, right? But the author's point here is the fact that he's crying out means that if your faith is in an unseen reality that can bring to existence something from nothing, then even in death, even in death, you have something stronger. You have a faith that even in death, Abel supposedly has some kind of hope in a future fulfillment of God's promise for him. Okay? Because his faith is rooted in the hypostasis, not in the earthly city. All right? So that's Abel. So Abel was commended by God. Cain is driven out. There's two cities, and there's a wilderness in between. There's Egypt, there's the promised land. And at any given time, if you are in Christ, or living in this world, you are either hanging on to that old city, or you're in the wilderness, and you're moving towards one or the other. You're not static. You're always moving to one of two cities. 
okay? And so I want to talk about faith a little bit as it's described, and there's a pattern that the author leads through. He always starts with, by faith, fill in the blank, did something to move towards a better promise, even though there was this and this, and God commended him, and he probably suffered or died for it. Um, that's, that's like most of the pattern of the hall of faith that gets laid out. But, but first of all, let's break this down. What does faith look like? First of all, it's a call to leave. It's a call to get out. Um, to leave Egypt. Abel offered a better sacrifice because his hope wasn't in the outside. He wanted to go back inside. Noah, being warned of things unseen, built the ark to save his family out of reverent fear for God. And by this he condemned the world, that which is seen, and became an heir of righteousness that comes through faith. Abraham left his land, his family, his household, his inheritance, everything, to go to the place that God would give him as an inheritance. And it says that he was looking forward to a city that had foundations. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What is that? That's an incredible amount of comfort, inheritance, wealth, luxury, but something caused him to choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to that greater reward. So the question is, is there a going out in your life? Is there a call to let go of our grasp on the hope that we've placed in things that are tangible seen, visible, felt, only all things that will crumble and decay or are tossing around in a turbulent ocean of existence. And so, as I've said before, the question is, if that's where your hope is rooted, will you crumble and be tossed about when they do? If that's where your hope is rooted, there has to be a getting out of some kind. There has to be a letting go. Um, two, faith is accompanied by action. It sounds cliche, but Enoch drew near to God. He sought him based on the belief that he exists and a desire to draw near. And so God credited him as righteous because of it's impossible to have to please God without faith and, uh, and to, to believe he exists and to draw near to him. Abraham obeyed and went out. Sarah considered him faithful who had promised even though she was barren. The promise to give her a son. They did not return to the land from which they had gone out, though they had the opportunity. When tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. Why? Because he believed that God would still fulfill his promise, even if Isaac died and God would bring him back from the dead. He believed that there is a source beyond death that can bring things into existence. And so he was obedient to God even in that test because he knew as he himself said to his servants, wait here, the boy and I are going to go worship and we're coming back to you. He believed God and he acted on it in faith. Joseph requested his bones be buried in the land of promise because he wants to be resurrected in the inheritance that God has promised him. Moses' parents hid the baby for three months when he was born because they did not fear the king's 
edict. There's action, there's a stepping away, and there's some kind of activity associated with your faith. Is there any kind of faith activity in your life? Is there a moving away from a city and a moving towards God's city in some form or another that requires some kind of sacrifice, some kind of letting go? Three, faith always has a cost. Abel was murdered. Abraham lived in the land of promise, but intense as a foreigner. He had an already but not yet inheritance, which is a word that is often used to talk about us. We have glimpses of that future promise now, but we don't get to see it quite yet. And there's a cost as we struggle with the flesh and what God is doing in us and what we're called to let go of. There's a cost involved. It says all these died in faith, but not Enoch. The rest of them did. Not receiving what was promised. Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict. They had to risk their lives. Okay? There's a cost. So is there a cost? Is there a suffering that's involved? In this country, it's kind of hard to ask that question because there's not many king's edict edicts that we're very afraid of, right? There's not much that's really threatening us that exposes those kings in that city for what it is that would cause us to sort of unlatch from it. So I, I find that personally dangerous for me because I'm really comfortable right now, except for our furnace breaking. But there's a lot of comforts, you know, there's a lot of things to just kind of hold on to in a tangible, visible reality that doesn't require much For there's commendation. There's some kind of a reward for that faith. Do you experience God's pleasure in your life? Even though there might be trials and tribulations. Is there a deeper joy? We light the joy candle today, anticipating the joy that is for all people at the birth of Christ. And the claim is that there is a deeper joy to be had because it's rooted in something behind this city. So do you have that joy? Is that, a, is that a measure of your faith? Do you experience God's pleasure in your life because you've been seeking him? Now, I'm not talking about God saving us based on some kind of work as, as seeking him. But I'm talking about the results of our faith. Is there, have you experienced, you have a testimony of something God has done in your life? Okay, so Abel was commended by God as righteous. E Enoch was commended as having pleased God and he was taken directly up. Sarah received the ability to conceive and bear a son. Moses considered the afflictions of Christ as better than the pleasures of Egypt because he had something even though they didn't get everything. Finally, there's a promised inheritance. The word heir is used a lot in here. Heirs of the promise, heirs of righteousness. God's people are to be heirs of his city, heirs of all things, as Paul says. The future things hoped for that we don't receive yet in this life, yet we do receive a down payment if you're in Christ. You do receive the Holy Spirit. 
Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. Abraham was to receive a place as an inheritance. He was looking forward to a city that had foundations. Abraham was given descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore. That happens to be you and me if we're in Christ out of a barren womb. Okay, so there's a future promise. There's a, a city that we hope in. Do you have hope in that city? And what does that actually look like? Does, do you have hope when your health crumbles? Do you have hope when your job crumbles? Or when you do step out in faith and you do something in your business or your work that isn't acting according to what is seen or visible because it conflicts with the gospel or what your faith calls us to be about or how we model Christ. And so there's a sacrifice. There's a possibility of losing your job. And I hear stories about that all the time. Is there a hope that's bigger than that? Is there a joy underneath it? So we have a getting out. There's an action associated, a forward motion. There's a cost involved. There's a security, a commendation that we feel or receive from God. And there's a, an inheritance, a future city that's hoped for. A hope of resurrection to a better life for those who are being tortured, as it said. Verse 13 says, these all, all these people died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. So in the wilderness, you're either going one way or you're going the other direction, and that's faith. Okay, not, not just a belief system, but where are you going? What, which, which way are you moving? As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, what's interesting about this is you have a pattern. And you have, um, by faith, so-and-so did something, rejected something else, suffered this, received that, all the way down through history until you get to Moses and the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. And then there's this gap, and suddenly the pattern breaks, and all he says is, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. So no mention of the wilderness, no mention of Joshua or Caleb or, or a big chunk of their history, their formative history. He left a gap. And he made it noticeable. Why? I believe that the simple answer is he wants us to put ourselves in that place. You're in the wilderness. You're living in tents as a foreigner, already in the land God has promised you, but not yet, because it's still Egypt. It's still the outside city. And so in that land, what, is, what does faith look like? And he leaves out Joshua, which is probably the biggest hero of the faith of all. 
And I think it's because Joshua's name in Hebrew is the same name as Jesus, Yeshua. And so we're in the wilderness, and the question is, are you going to trust your Yeshua, your Jesus, your Joshua, to lead you not just to adhere to a set of beliefs that's going to get you to a heavenly city by and by, but a faith that's going to lead you to bring down walls. A faith that's going to conquer cities. A faith that's going to bring that future city to bear on the city today, here and now. Because our future hope isn't just to go to heaven to that city. Our future is resurrection, as it says, which means the resurrection of this city and the transformation of this world. That's God's ultimate future. 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 20, 21, heaven comes down. We don't stay up. Heaven comes down. And God completely restores and rescues everything. So the question is, are we a part of that process already by faith? Our passage closes with, And what shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of a sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now pause there. Because the point that he's making all along is these are not super people. These are, these are things for you and me. These are the people that he aligns with us. As we read on, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And of all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they're not complete people, and they're not going to reach that point of completion apart from us reaching completion in Christ and the work that he's doing in us because it all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to faith in his finished work, not our work. Because I can look at this message and I can go like, gosh, I'm awfully comfortable today. Gosh, there's not a lot of getting out or moving forward or, or paying a cost or suffering or stepping out and doing things that are uncomfortable that are going to tick some people off, but I know it's the right thing to do. You know, that, I'm not seeing a lot of that. So is God unhappy with me? Am I under his judgment? Am I kind of, I might be grabbing hold of that city, but am I, you know, stuck to it? What's, what's the deal here? And there's a, you know, there's an interesting thing that he does. He talked about how Abel's, Abel still cries out from the dead, from the ground. And later in chapter 12, I'm kind of stealing thunder from the future here, but he says something interesting. He says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. 
than the blood of Abel. What's that mean? It means that Abel's blood is crying out against injustice, longing for a home characterized by justice. But the reason we can't be in that home completely is because in our flesh, our propensity is to grab a hold of things that are seen and to shape our lives accordingly, which always leads to greed and violence and injustice in our own lives. And so if God is going to bring about his city, it's going to be empty except for Jesus. Unless he does something about it. Because Abel's blood cried out for justice. That means you and I are the guilty ones who deserve justice. But Jesus on the cross looked out on those who were crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's what his blood says. His blood says, now you're shielded we talked about the veil and the cloud and the things that draw you through that doorway so you can come back into him, through him. Because he gave a blood, a once for all better sacrifice that buys our way back into the city. All of this depends on Jesus. But the question is, what do we do? Several things. One, Learn to see the world through new eyes. Learn to always be asking the question and looking beyond what is visible, beyond the choice I have to make and whether it makes sense financially or practically, but always, is there an unseen reality that is asking me to do something different with this, to step out in faith in this? How do you learn to see those things? Well, you've got to be familiar with God's word and his language and how people see in his kingdom. We need new eyes. Also, decide which city you want to put your hope in. And then ask yourself, are there things that I need to step out of? Are there things I need to walk away from? Is there a getting out of that old city in some way that needs to take place in my own life? And ask God to reveal that to you. Third, don't fear the king's verdict. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of Christians lose their joy over things that are visible and seen because of fear. Because all their hope is being placed in this city. And whatever candidate you're going to remove from office or elect to office to fix the city for you. And so we lose our joy, and we start to act like something completely different than what would exist in Christ's city. We start to look like the world hurling stones and treating people with contempt because we think all of our hope is in a person who's going to wear this mantle of fixing our world and our city. But everything we're longing for could never be accomplished by a single human being. And so uh, that's one area, maybe, where our joy, our hope is rooted in things that are seen and not unseen. So ask yourself, where am I losing my joy? Because what is my hope in? And the backside of that is, what is my fear? 
What am I afraid of losing? What's going to, you know, is it my retirement account? Is it my social security? Is it my job? If I, if I make this decision, am I going to lose my job? There's a big unknown. Do I fear that? And is that determining my life because I'm putting my hope in things that are seen only? Okay, so don't fear the king's edict. They counted it better to suffer for the cause of Christ than to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. Is there something that much better that would be that worth it? Don't fear the king's edict. Hebrews 2 says that in verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood since they do Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things he shared in our experience that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, the king okay, of the city, or that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you continue to hold on to hope in what is seen, you are or will be, whether you realize it or not, a slave. Because that hope is manipulative and fragile. But there is something deeper that came before there was anything else, which means it's stronger than death, which means that Abel can cry out from the grave because he still holds on to that hope. Do you? Let's hold on to that hope together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your table now and we reflect on this gift that is given for us, your body broken for us, the bread broken, your body given for us, the blood of your covenant shed for us to make a way for us to come in, to enjoy even now a taste of that city. And I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have that as their experience, Lord, that they would respond to you and come to you and draw near to you now, that they would put their trust and their faith in Jesus, not in their own work, not in their own goodness or religion. Lord, we believe there is a reality underneath what we can see. And if that's even remotely true, then the only thing that can possibly make sense is that that reality has preeminence over the visible reality. And so God, make us better at seeking to see how we can live by faith in that reality, trusting in the unseen, living according to your gospel, so that the world can be free of the slavery, of the fear of death, and the king's edict who holds it over them. We pray that for our own lives too. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We hope to see you soon.